Thank you, Pastor Roger. Um, it's my great joy and delight to be back here at Bishan uh, preaching. Um, I think the last time that I was here was, uh, I think, over uh, a year ago. And um, maybe just to give some context for some of the new faces, uh, my name's Edmund. I'm one of the pastors here at ARPC. Uh, together with my family, we mainly worship at the 9 o'clock service at Adam. Um, and Monday to Fridays, uh, I actually work at uh, Trinity Theological College where I serve as one of the lecturers there. So it's my great joy and delight to come back and hopefully after the service, I can reconnect with some old friends as well as meet some new ones. Yep. Um, but we're going to talk about a very difficult topic today um, on God's justice, God's judgment. And so um, as per everything that we proclaim uh, through the pulpit, we need to ask for um, God's help uh, in, in preaching it and also for us in understanding it. So can I please invite you to join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, this is a very difficult word uh, to preach. This is a very difficult word to listen to in today's culture and environment. Uh, but this is really a needed word uh, to, to, for us to listen to. So we pray and ask that you really open up our hearts, open up our minds, grant us humility, and grant us courage. Um, yeah, and may the words that are found on my lips and the meditation in our hearts uh, bring your name, glory, and praise. Amen. Now, sometimes what makes good news good news is because the good news is a counter-response to bad news, isn't it? So in other words, what makes the good news good is because there is bad news to begin with. For example, you see here, um, OCBC arranges for full goodwill payouts to 790 customers who lost 13.7 million to phishing scams. Okay? This was in January 2022, and I'm sure we're familiar with it. Okay? And this might appear as good news. Good news that OCBC uh, is willing to do that as a bank. Okay? But that is, of course, good news that is set in the context of bad news that, that so many people lost uh, the money to phishing scams. Right? So another example might be the National Day Rally, where the Prime Minister announces all the national measures and initiatives that will be implemented. Often, these measures are announced as good news against a backdrop of bad news. So what's the bad news? Rising cost of living, unsure if we, have, if we will have enough retirement funds, public housing becoming increasingly unaffordable in the mature estates. Now, that's all bad news. That's why we'll be having measures like the GST relief package, CDC vouchers. That's why we will be having the Majula package on top of the Madaka and the Pioneer packages that we have been having so far. That's why we will now have standard, plus, and prime categories to ensure that new flats in the mature estates can still remain affordable, right? So I noticed as I was driving in, there's a new HDB cluster of HDB flats coming up. Huh? So that one will be standard or prime or plus. Don't know. Huh? Okay. But anyway, all these measures and initiatives are good news against a backdrop of bad news. Right? So of course, some of us will say, hey, not enough good news. Huh? We need some more. But that's not up to me to decide. So we can only pray for that. Yeah? But I think the point is made. What makes good news good sometimes is because of bad news. So we will know by now that ARPC is currently doing a series on two ways to live. 
which is really an easy-to-use and simple explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another way of translating the word gospel is simply good news. So two ways to live really presents the good news of Jesus Christ. And today, as we cover box three of the two ways to live presentation, altogether two ways to live has six boxes, so we're now at box three, we come to what is the bad news that makes the good news of Jesus Christ so good. And the bad news is this, because of our sin and rebellion against God, we have to face the justice of God. We are under the judgment of God. So let's look at how the two ways to live presentation puts it across to us. So this is the uh, presentation that's found on the two ways to live website. And let me just read it out for us. It's a bit small, but um, you can just hear along. Like any good ruler, God cares enough to take our rebellion seriously. He holds us accountable for our actions because it matters to him that we dishonor him, that we treat other people so poorly that we ruin his world. In other words, God won't let the rebellion go on forever. It will be unjust of him to do so. We experience God's judgment against our rebellion in the reality of death. Suffering and death are not natural. The corruption, decay and death in our world are part of God's punishment for humanity's rejection of Him. But there is a further judgment that we will face. We will all one day stand before God and give account to Him for our lives, for the damage we have done and for our personal rejection of Him as our ruler. The sentence God will pass on that day will be to give us what we have asked for, which is separation from Him. He will cut us off from Himself permanently. And since God is the source of life and all good things, being cut off from Him means a destruction that never ends. This is a terrible thing, to fall under the sentence of God's judgment. It's a prospect we all face because we're all guilty of rebelling against God. Okay. So that's the, the write-up that's given on the Two Ways to Live website and it's part of the presentation. And what I want to do with us this morning is really to further elaborate on what is mentioned in this presentation. And I'll be doing it according to the following three points. Okay? The what, the why of judgment, the what of judgment, and the how of proclaiming judgment in our evangelism. So let's begin with the why of judgment. Two ways to live puts it like this. Like any good ruler, God cares enough to take our rebellion seriously. And a little further on, God won't let the rebellion go on forever. It will be unjust of Him to do so. In other words, to the question, why must there be judgment? Why must God judge? The answer is clear. Because that is who God is. God is the God of perfect justice. His perfection of justice is far above and far beyond how you or I or anyone could humanly possibly try to conceive of justice. That is, whatever forms the best and possible human conception of what justice means for us, God's justice is far above and far beyond that. And if you and I, if our very best of our human conceptions of justice includes the notion of judgment and the act of judging, 
then what more for God's perfect justice that constitutes who He is? So because of who He is, the God of perfect justice, God must judge against all that is evil, wrong, and an offence to His holiness. You see, that's the picture of God that we see from day one in the Bible. Meaning, it's not as if God doesn't show His justice, you know, that He hides it from us, and then only to review it on the last day of judgment. No, it doesn't work that way. But the minute we saw an offence against God's honour and glory, the minute we saw sin, we saw immediately God's justice, which leads Him to just to judge humanity. So Genesis 3, isn't it? Right, found right in the beginning of the pages of His Holy Word. The minute Adam and Eve, the first of humanity, sinned against God by disobeying Him and by wanting to usurp His place, God responded by judging them. So you see down there, it's a, um, I'm not going to read it, but that's uh, Genesis 6, uh, ju- sorry, Genesis 3, uh, verses 14 to 19. Yep, uh, God's uh, judgment on Adam and Eve's uh, sin. And that's a consistent picture that we see of God throughout the Scriptures. Whenever Israel, his people, sin, they are judged by God. Sometimes immediately, sometimes after a, a period, but they are judged by God. In fact, the just character of God and His natural response to evil and rebellion is seen in God's name. And God is who He is in the revelation of His name. God is simply the great I Am. So remember when Moses wanted to see God, God uh, revealed Himself to Moses. Uh, Exodus 34 verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So if God's justice, which leads to Him judging, is part and parcel of who He is, then I think there are two specific linkages between God's justice and His character that need to be explored further. And the first is this. God's justice is crucial to God's goodness. What I mean by this statement is this. Now let me ask, what enables you and I to say or to sing, God is good all the time, right? To say or to sing the above, even when we are mistreated unjustly, when we are bullied, or when we suffer great injustices at our workplaces. What enables you and I, in other words, to live out Romans 12, 14 to 21 in those instances? And here's Romans 12, 14 to 21, right? What enables us to not repay evil for evil? Verse 17. To not avenge ourselves? Verse 19. To, in the summing words of verse 21, not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. What enables you and I to do that? It's because of verse 19, isn't it? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But in order for God to say that, 
he must be a God of justice in the first place. His goodness in this instance is tied to the fact that he is a God of justice. And here I must go on a slight detour and clarify something about Romans 12. Romans 12 is not calling us simply to be doormats and to just allow ourselves to remain in situations where we are bullied or treated unjustly, right? If we can get out of those situations, if we can get help to get ourselves out of those situations, by all means, we should get out of those situations. But what Romans 12 is telling us is that even if we can get out of those situations, we must never repay evil and wrongdoing for the evil and wrongdoing that we ourselves have received. Right? So may God grant us wisdom to know when we are doing what and to save us from crossing what is often a very thin line, right? as we think about this in our workplaces and so forth. Coming back to my point, what I'm trying to say is this. We cannot simply conclude that a God who allows his people or the innocent to go through sufferings and injustices is therefore not a good God. We cannot conclude that way. Rather, it is a God who turns a blind eye and does nothing to the great sufferings and injustices of his people and the innocent. That can't possibly be a good God. In other words, it's not so much whether God permits suffering and injustices to take place that determines whether he's a good God or not. Rather, it's whether he's going to do anything about the suffering and injustices that determines whether he's a good God or not. God's justice is crucial to his goodness. The second key linkage between God's justice and his character God's judging is crucial to God-loving. You see, popular thinking and culture tends to associate judging, and here I'm using the word judging as a defining of what is wrong or right. Okay? People tend to see the act of judging as an unloving thing to do, isn't it? So we often hear it said, hey, don't judge, uh, you know, don't judge. It's not a loving thing to do, but rather if you love someone, then you will accept that person for who he or she is and not judge that person. See, we tend to interpret that truly loving someone requires us to cast aside all moral standards of what is right or wrong and simply accept, in fact, not just accept, but endorse that person as he or she is. See, I can understand why we tend to think this way. It's a result of the world that we live in, this wider culture of individual expressivism that we live in today. And that is really this mood and thinking that I am to be endorsed unconditionally by society and by everyone for being who I really feel and think that is inside of me. But what I want to say is that such love can't work. True love is always expressed in wanting or desiring what is true and good for the person we love. I'll say that again. True love is always expressed in wanting or desiring what is true and good for the person we love. So to the parents out there, if we truly love our child, we will seek to bring up our child in accordance with what we understand to be morally true and good, isn't it? We won't be teaching our children how to cheat, how to lie, how to bully, how to abuse other people, right? 
Right? We weren't right. If you find yourself doing that with your children, then I think it's time that you seriously repent because we shouldn't be doing that, right? Instead, we'll be teaching our children to be people of integrity, to have respect for all. But in order to do that, we will, as parents at certain times, have to judge their actions, discern what they are saying, and even at other times, discipline them when they are embarking or have embarked on the wrong path. Can I say, if that is true for human love, which at its best still fails to grasp what is true and good, what more for divine love? What more for God's loving of us? God who is not just chasing after and trying to grasp the true and the good like we are, but God who is the true and the good himself. Wouldn't his divine loving of us call for him to be a God who judges at the same time? So, dear friends, we don't just have a God who loves us with some warm, fuzzy, undefined kind of love, but our God loves us with a holy love. A holy love that expresses the perfect truth and goodness that God is. Such holy loving calls for justice. It calls for judgment. We move on. Having explored the why of judgment, we now turn to look at the what of judgment. How is God's judgment seen or experienced? And here there are just two points that I would like to bring up. God's judgment expressed now and God's judgment expressed on the final day of judgment. We look first at God's judgment expressed now. Now, the passage that we read earlier as our responsive reading shows this, doesn't it? Then that's found in Romans 1, 18 to 32. And in here, all I just want to call our attention is verse 18. Verse 18 begins by telling us that the wrath of God is now already being revealed from heaven against all of humanity's ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then at the start of the next three paragraphs, at verses 24, 26, and 28, you find this repeated phrase, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. So the Greek word that is used here carries the idea of handing over something to someone, particularly a right or an authority. In some instances, the word could also carry an idea of causation, causing someone to have something. Right? So used here in Romans, the idea is that of God giving us up or God handing us over to something. And as we have seen from last week, if sin is us turning away from God and turning inward towards ourselves, then here, the judgment of God now is really God giving us over, God handing us over to what our actions, our attitudes, and our natures, what they want. And that is a turning away from Him and an inward turning to ourselves instead. So instead of letting God determine what counts as right or wrong actions, we want to determine right or wrong ourselves. Instead of an attitude of worship toward God, our creator and giver of life, our attitude is that we want to elevate ourselves to take over God's place. 
instead of a nature that is soft, that is malleable to God shaping and molding us, we now have a nature that is so steeped and bound to sin that short of God's miraculous grace and intervention is totally hardened to Him. See, that's how I understand the judgment of God now. It's not so much God causing us to turn away from Him than God allowing us to remain in this state where we chose and choose to turn away from Him. In John's Gospel, it is put across this way, that the true light has come, but we choose to remain in darkness. John 3.19 That whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Or another way of putting it, remains in his or her state of condemnation. John 3.18 So maybe this might help. It's like we are on this kayak that is travelling down the rapids, the rapids river of our sin and rebellion. And see, the thing is that we chose to be there. We chose to launch our kayaks to travel down these rapids. And God's judgment now is simply that He allows us to go along with the flow of the rapids. And if God does not intervene by throwing us a rope, or by putting up some form of a barrier to break the flow of the rapids, we will simply be carried by the rapids of our sin and rebellion to its final destination. And the scriptures tell us that death is the final destination where our sin and rebellion takes us. Two ways to live. State it well. Let me just read for us again. We experience God's judgment against our rebellion in the reality of death. Suffering and death are not natural. The corruption, decay, and death in our world are part of God's punishment for humanity's rejection of Him. If sin and rebellion is us saying no to our Creator, Giver, and Sustainer of life, then there can only be one outcome for us who persist in our rebellion to the very end. And the outcome is death death where we are cut off from the life giver himself but that's not all the bible and especially our verse for this box of two ways to live hebrews 9 27 tells us that the first death which everyone goes through is not the final thing there is still god's judgment expressed <clears throat> on the final day of judgment <clears throat> Our scripture passage, <clears throat> sorry about that. Revelations 20, 11 to 15 describes this final judgment from God as being consigned to the lake of fire, further described as the second death. That's where death and Hades themselves belong, and here Hades should simply be understood as the place where the dead remain until the day of this final judgment. The picture that we get from these verses seems to be that those under the final judgment of God are consigned eternally or forever to the lake of fire. Other passages in Scripture, too many for me to show at this point, so I can only list it out for us. They show God's final judgment as consi consigning those under that judgment to a place that is traditionally called hell. And put together, all these different passages 
hell is pictured for us as a place of eternal torment, darkness, separation, destruction. It's a terrible place to be in. You and I don't want to be there. That's why the one person who spoke the most about hell, and that is the Lord Jesus himself, he warns us about the dangers and terrors of hell <clears throat> so that we will not end up there. <clears throat> I guess it is because this truth of God's final judgment is such a hard truth to take in that we tend to shy away from it whenever we share the gospel today. But I like to think that there's another factor to us shying away from talking about God's final judgment and hell. It is because we tend to have the wrong picture of God's final judgment and hell. We tend to think that hell is this place on the final judgment where God says to people who have rejected Him during the years that they were alive, God says to such people, See, I told you to believe in me when you had the chance. Too late now. Off to hell you go. Huh? Just like how, some, even as I say that, some of us, we call our parents, huh, who tell us, See, I told you to believe in me. You do one now, you suffer the consequences. So we tend to have that kind of picture, right? God saying that. And we picture God saying that in an almost spiteful way to the people who are consigned to hell. Even as these people are resisting, screaming, crying, and pleading for mercy. But God says, too late now. You had your chance to believe in my son, but you didn't. So it's too late now. That's why you shouldn't fall asleep when the pastor is preaching. Huh? Okay? And God turns his face away from them, even as these people are literally dragged to hell against their wills. I used to picture God's final judgment in hell in this way. Maybe that was from the fire and brimstone kind of preaching in the earlier years of my Christian life. Yeah? Until I came across pastor theologian Tim Keller's way of presenting it. He borrowed and he used a phrase from C.S. Lewis. The doors of hell are locked from the inside. Meaning, it's not so much God who places people in hell, but it is people themselves who choose to be there and want to be there. So under this way of thinking, even if God is seen in Scripture consigning people to their final destination in hell, it's only because in consigning, He allows them to be where they want to be all the way, even to the very end. And where they want to be all the way, even to the very end, is to be away from God and to have absolutely nothing to do with His presence, even beyond death. Two other aspects <clears throat> of Christian thinking further deepen this picture of hell. The first speaks of the eternal nature of hell, and the second, the terror of hell. And these two points are really related together. Also, at this point, I have to declare that what I'm about to say is not directly mentioned in Scripture. Okay? You can't come up to me and say, uh, Pastor Edmund, show me where you got that from, from Scripture. Okay? I, I can't show it to you. But at best, it is a construct. Yet, it is a construct that, in my view, is built upon sound theology. Okay? So the first aspect is this. Theologians and the church fathers, especially the great theologian St. Augustine, have said this 
that in heaven we will not be able to sin anymore. So Augustine famously said this, that before the fall, humanity was able to sin or not sin. After the fall, we are not able to not sin. When Christ redeems us, we start to be able to not sin. But in heaven, when we are fully glorified, we will not be able to sin anymore. And one reason why we are not able to sin anymore in heaven is because we will not choose to sin or disobey anymore. In the full presence of God, whom we will see face to face via our resurrected bodies, in the body and face of our Lord Jesus Christ, our wills would have been fully conformed to the human will of the one God-man, the Lord Jesus. That work of conforming our volition and human wills to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ would have been completed. That's why we will not be able to sin anymore in heaven. If that is so, then can we say that in hell, the opposite might be true? That totally devoid of any semblance of the presence of God or the Lord Jesus, our wills and volition will only remain in the rebellious state it found itself in after the fall, where we are not able to not sin and where we will only remain in that state forever. Those who didn't want to have anything to do with God and the Lord Jesus while they were still living will forever continue not to want to have anything to do with God and the Lord Jesus, even in the second death. The second aspect is this. One of the effects of the fall that Reformed theology has always stated we suffer from is the idea of total depravity. And by that, the, reform, the reformers and, and the reformed theologians meant not that we are as bad and evil as we can be, but rather that every faculty of ours, the mind, the body, the soul, the will, the emotions, all of it has been affected by the fall. And one reason why even though we are totally depraved, we are still not as bad and evil as we can be is because of whatever semblance of grace that God still bestows upon fallen humanity. That common grace restrains us. So once again, I wonder if in hell, where any semblance of the presence of God or the Lord Jesus is totally removed, whether there we will experience the full extent of our total depravity. Where there, we will be as bad and evil as we can be. Where there, we will experience for every moment what we experience sometimes now. And what is the experience that we experience sometimes now? Where we just come to see how ugly and horrendous our sinful selves are. Right? So have you and I ever in certain moments had this said to us? Or perhaps in our own exasperation, we might even have said this to ourselves. That you are unbearable to live with. That I am unbearable to live with. Have you ever had those moments? In hell, stripped of the presence of God and the Lord Jesus, we will experience the full weight of the ugliness 
and horror of our sin. That's why hell is a place of torment and destruction, because it's a place of self-torment, self-destruction. That, I think, is the picture of the final judgment that two ways to live Christ to present to us where its doors are locked from the inside, where in there we dig our heels in and continue in our rebellion and resistance against God, and as a result experience forever the full terror and horror of our own self-torment and self-destruction. Let me just read to us two ways to live, which I think tries to capture this. The sentence God will pass on that day will be to give us what we have asked for, which is separation from Him. He will cut us off from Himself permanently. And since God is the source of life and all good things, being cut off from Him means a destruction that never ends. Now that we have known the why and what of God's judgment, I want to end our time together by considering how we should go about proclaiming judgment in our evangelism. And I want to begin by saying that the older model of fire and brimstone way of preaching the judgment of God, I don't think it works in our modern culture anymore. You know, the kind of preaching or sharing of the gospel message that seemingly portrays God as this menacing judge, delighting that all the sinners who rebel against him are finally getting their just desserts as they are dragged away to their eternal destiny of suffering and torment. You know, where in there, even if they should repent, it'll be too late for them to do so. Why? Because they missed out their chance while they were living on earth. Now, what I mentioned earlier, I think such a depiction of God's final judgment is wrong. It portrays the wrong picture of God as judge. It suggests that God is cold, vindictive, and just keen on settling scores. And it seems to put a cap on God's mercy. So really, the fire and brimstone way of preaching God's judgment doesn't work in our modern culture anymore. I've heard young people say to me that if this is how God the judge is like, then they would rather not believe in God. Rather, I'll encourage us to present God's judgment in our evangelism, um, and I suggest uh, perhaps in the following ways. Number one, proclaim the bad news of being under God's judgment. Show the horrors of hell. Not because God is finally having his vindictive moment and delighting in banishing sinners to hell. Not because of that, but because the doors of hell are really locked from the inside. Because in there, people will continue to dig in their heels, continue in their rebellion and resistance against God. That's the only thing that they will want to do, and that's the only thing that they can do. Because in there, in hell, people will be as bad and evil as they can be and experience every moment the full terror and horror of their own self-torment and their own self-destruction. They will come face to face every moment with the full depth and power and ugliness of their sin and rebellion. One of the movies that I watched um, some time ago that has really left a lasting impact upon me is the, is the movie by um, Robin Williams, um, yeah, the, 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 the actor who has passed away. And, uh, it's, an, it's an old production. It's called What Dreams May Come. I don't know, any of you watched that before? What Dreams May Come? It's a show. It's about portrayal of how um, he dies and he ends up in heaven. 
And because um, his uh, wife was grieving on earth, and so she couldn't take it anymore, and she did the one thing that um, the Roman Catholic tradition doesn't permit for, is she took her own life. And because of that, she ends up in hell. So the movie talks about how Robin Williams tries to move from heaven to hell, though that is not possible, okay, in order to rescue her. But it is really the scene of the wife being in hell that left the impression on my mind forever. And that scene of her being in hell is she reliving the point and the moment where she took her own life over and over and over and over again. So in other words, all she existentially felt was the full weight and the, and the terrible moment of her anguish. And she was experiencing that forever. Yeah. And no matter how much he tried to convince her, she just couldn't listen to him. Yeah. For me, perhaps, that, that, that impression on what hell is really like, and, and, and the horrors and the terrors of hell, where in there we will be as bad and as evil as we can be, where in there every moment of our existence we will have to face with the ugliness of our sin and rebellion. Yeah. And if we can agree with this picture, then we can see why hell is such a scary place and why the Lord Jesus warned us and, and not to do all that we can not to end up there. And if you and I can agree with the above picture, then we will also never proclaim the, the bad news of being under God's judgment, unmoved and without emotions. But we will proclaim this message the only way that we should, with tears and with strong pleading. We will pray, we will plead more and more for our loved ones who still have not heard the gospel, or perhaps our loved ones who, who maybe have heard the gospel but seem to be moving away from the gospel, we will plead all that we can do to share the gospel with them. We will pray all that we can and we will say, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. And do what we can to share the gospel with them. That is the only way, friends, to proclaim the bad news of being under God's judgment with tears and with a continual pleading upon the Lord's mercy. When proclaiming the judgment of God in our gospel sharing, we need to connect the justice and judgment of God with His goodness and His loving of us. And so we need to proclaim the good news that God is a God of justice who will judge. We need to show this as good news, that you and I have a God whose justice is intrinsically connected to His goodness, and whose act of judging is intrinsically connected to his holy loving of us. As terrible and frightening a thought it is to be under the rule of a God of justice and judgment, especially if you and I are on the side of resistance against him, I put it across to us that it is far much more terrible and frightening a thought to be under the rule of a God who couldn't care less, whose loving of you and I at the end of the day is not directed to his goodness and his truth. It's far much more frightening to be under such a God. And lastly, we want to proclaim the best news that God in Jesus Christ has come to save us from being under God's judgment. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Praise God. Praise Him for the best news that is offered to us. And that is what we will continue to hear more next week as we move to the next box of Two Ways to Live. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we have just heard a serious word from you. We have just heard from your scriptures what you have to tell us about yourself. That because you are a perfect God of justice, that you must judge. And because you are a God who really loves us with their holy love, that judging is part of your loving. Father, we, we, we acknowledge that these words are very hard words to take in, especially in this culture that we live in today. But we pray that by your spirit and by your grace, that we may indeed see this as good news. At the same time, that we may also come to see the bad news, the, 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 the terrors of hell, the, the terrors of being in a state where we want to resist against you, we want to rebel against you and, and, and forever remain doing so. Oh Lord, help us to see the, the, the terrors of that. And in doing so, help us to see the grace and the salvation that you have offered to us in your Son. And we praise you for that. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you may empower us and help us, that we may know how to proclaim the gospel indeed with tears, indeed with pleading, that really our loved ones who do not know the gospel will not have to come under this judgment. And so we pray that you strengthen us to do so. And as we do that, may we always cry out to you, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.